the joy of Hello, my name is Bryant Davis, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 6 of The Joy of Serious Literature, the literary podcast that reads the obscure classics of global literature so that you don't have to, unless you want to. It's your life. On November 25th, 1970, the world-renowned Japanese novelist, essayist, short story writer, playwright, film actor, film director, film writer, photography model, and occasional fashion designer, Yukio Mishima, and four young associates, one of whom is believed to have been Mishima's lover, seized control of a Japanese military base using samurai swords and ordered the entire garrison to assemble in front of the headquarters building so that the leading East Asian contender for the Nobel Prize in Literature could give them a speech. Marching out onto the balcony, Yukio Mishima, dressed in a military-esque uniform of his own design and wearing one of those kamikaze bandanas, demanded that the soldiers rise up in a coup d'etat and restore the Japanese emperor to his rightful position as the one true leader of the Japanese nation. The speech, however, did not go over terribly well, the soldiers not only refusing to listen to him, but actively heckling and insulting him. After finishing his speech, Mishima then returned inside the building, where he, at the age of 45, committed harakiri, the old-school ritualized form of suicide practiced by samurai. He took out a dagger, he plunged it into his belly, he pulled it across, disemboweling himself, until, satisfied with his honor and discipline, his second-in-command and supposed lover lopped off his head with a samurai sword. Or at least tried to. Apparently his second-in-command couldn't quite get the job done, and had to get another of the conspirators to finish the job. In Japan, they call this the Mishima Incident, and it is effectively the Japanese literary equivalent of 9-11. The political fallout was massive, cultural life in the nation was never the same again, the image of his severed head was seared into the memories of an entire generation of Japanese, like the blood-stained face of Jackie Kennedy. For millions of Japanese, the question, where were you when Mishima killed himself, became ubiquitous. In many ways, for decades, you couldn't even be a novelist in Japan without addressing in some capacity what the hell it was that happened in that headquarters building. But what about the writing? Because Mishima was not just a man who committed suicide in this dramatic and ostentatious way. He was first and foremost a writer. He was a legendary writer. He was a writer who, had he never killed himself, but died in a car accident or of cancer at 45, still would have gone on to define the shape of Japanese literature for decades and decades. He was only ever able to kill himself in the way that he did, to walk into that military building with a samurai sword, to get a meeting with the commandant, to convince his associates to throw away their lives with him because of his writing because his novels had made him a national celebrity, whom a great many people, especially young people in Japan, worshipped like an intellectual god. He was the towering and decadent enfant terrible of Japanese literature. He was the great gay fascist. He was the ultimate stylist of life and love and death. For almost half a century, from the 1950s on up through the 1980s, Mishima was unquestionably the defining literary figure in Japan. You either wrote in his shadow, or you wrote in rebellion against his shadow. Whenever I introduce someone to Mishima, as I am always doing, full disclosure, because I love him, I always start by giving them a copy of Mishima's novel, The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea. The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea was published in 1963, during the golden age, as it were, of Mishima's literary fame. And it is in this little novel, of only 180 pages, that I think he most clearly and simply evokes what it was that made Mishima Mishima, 
his ideas. The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea takes place in the Japanese port city of Yokohama, which is just a little south of Tokyo, somewhere in the late 50s, it feels. At that time, Yokohama was Japan's primary seaport. Thousands and thousands of ships were constantly coming in and out of Yokohama, many of them American naval vessels. The story revolves around three people. First is Fusako, who is a young, upper-middle-class widow. She owns, and now that her husband is dead, manages a luxury clothing boutique in Yokohama that specializes in importing high-end clothing, super-fancy gloves, ties, dresses, shirts, from Europe and New York and the like, and then selling them to the local elite. Most notably, there's this one big Japanese actress that's always coming down to buy her outfits from Fusako. But by the novel's opening, it's become clear to Fusako that she doesn't want to be a widow anymore. This is where our second major character comes into play, a sailor named Ryuji. Ryuji is the second mate on a cargo vessel that happens to be in port in Yokohama at the time. Ryuji, though, isn't just any sailor. He is a man who has a very distinct idea of what it means to be a sailor. Sailing isn't just a job for him, the way it is for his crewmates. Sailing for him is a spiritual calling. He is a sailor because to be a sailor is to live a life with the possibility of glory. He had no idea, Mishima writes, what kind of glory he wanted, or what kind he was suited for. He only knew that in the depths of the world's darkness was a point of light, which had been provided for him alone, and would draw near someday to irradiate him and no other. This idea of glory is vital for understanding the sailor who fell from grace with the sea, and for understanding Mishima. Mishima believed that life is, must be, an aesthetic object. If one is to be truly alive, one must live beautifully. And what Ryuji sees in the sea is the possibility of that beauty. He can't define it. He doesn't know what exactly it will be. He struggles to find any means to articulate his belief to anyone. But he knows that if he stays there long enough, if he continues sailing, then one day that beauty will maybe find him. He remembered her asking, Why haven't you ever married? And he remembered his simpering answer. It's not easy to find a woman who is willing to marry a sailor. But what he had wanted to say was, All of the other officers have two or three children by now, and they read letters from home over and over again, and look at pictures their kids have drawn of houses and the sun and flowers. Those men have thrown opportunity away, there's no hope for them anymore. I've never done much, but I've lived my whole life thinking of myself as the only real man. And if I'm right, then a limpid, lonely horn is going to trumpet through the dawn someday, and a turgid cloud, laced with light, will sweep down, and the poignant voice of glory will call for me from the distance, and I'll have to jump out of bed and set out alone. That's why I've never married. I've waited and waited, and here I am, past thirty. This passage evokes, I think, both the joy and the difficulty of much of Mishima's writing. Mishima is ridiculous. His characters are ridiculous. There is a way in which somewhere in the translation that the sincerity and seriousness of what his characters declare, that some magic horn is waiting to trumpet them into the sublime, is somewhat lost. You read a statement like that and can't help but giggle a little. And yet somehow, strangely, magically, in the preposterousness of what his characters say, in the way that we in our ironic age sneer at how they feel or think, a certain truth rings out. What this man says is silly, but it is also true, and it is also a thing we share. Don't we all, when we are alone in our beds or alone in our walks, when there is no prying eye to judge us, dream of glory, dream of meaning, dream of being spectacular? 
And yet, as those last lines in Ryuji's interior monologue hint, he's growing tired of that life of potential beauty. He's getting old. He worries the moment he's been waiting for might never come. He's getting lonely. The pressure of society and, you know, basic reason are pushing in on him to get married and begin conforming. To finally become, instead of the only real man, a normal man. Fusako and Ryuji meet because of Fusako's son, Noboru. Noboru is about 13 and he likes ships. And so, like the dutiful mother that she is, Fusako takes him to see Ryuji's ship while it's in the harbor. And he does a really good job, and Noboru seems to really like him. So she invites him, as a way of saying thanks, to come to their home for dinner one night and tell them all sorts of stories about the sea. Sounds like the beginning to a wonderful love story, doesn't it? A golden age Hollywood romance starring Rock Hudson and shot with all the women in soft focus. Oh my god, you could not possibly be more wrong. And the reason it is not is Noboru, our third and most important character. Because Noboru isn't your average humdrum 13-year-old. Noboru is a supremely intelligent and precocious 13-year-old. Perhaps the most wonderfully precocious 13-year-old in the history of precocious 13-year-olds in literature. Noboru never cried, not even in his dreams, for hard-heartedness was a point of pride. A large iron anchor withstanding the corrosion of the sea and scornful of the barnacles and oysters that harassed the hulls of ships, sinking, polished and indifferent through heaps of broken glass, toothless combs, bottle caps, and prophylactics into the mud at the harbor bottom. That was how he liked to imagine his heart. Some day he would have an anchor tattooed on his chest. Noboru, we eventually learn, is a member of a secret society of local, overly intelligent 11, 12, and 13-year-old boys. In that society, each boy is known not by their name, but by a number. Noboru, for example, is number three, except for their leader, who is called the Chief. These boys are what make the novel in a lot of ways, because they are boys who have decided that they are geniuses, that they are ubermenches, and therefore are the proper masters of the world, the ultimate arbiters of reality and morality. What this actually means, how this actually manifests itself, is I think best evoked by one of the novel's most haunting scenes. About a third of the way through the novel, Noboru and his crew happen to get their hands on a kitten. Together, they take the kitten into a shed behind one of their houses. There, the chief instructs Noboru to kill it. At last, the test of Noboru's hard, cold heart. Just a minute before, he had taken a cold bath, but he was sweating heavily again. He felt it blow up through his breast like the morning sea breeze, intent to kill. His chest felt like a clothes rack made of hollow metal poles and hung with white shirts drying in the sun. Soon the shirts would be flapping in the wind, and then he would be killing, breaking the endless chain of society's loathsome taboos. Noboru seized the kitten by the neck and stood up. It dangled dumbly from his fingers. He checked himself for pity like a lighted window seen from an express train. It flickered for an instant in the distance and disappeared. He was relieved. The chief always insisted that it would take acts such as this to fill the world's great hollows. Though nothing else could do it, he said, murder would fill those gaping caves in much the same way that a crack along its face will fill a mirror. Then they would achieve real power over existence. Resolved, Noboru swung the kitten high above his head and slammed it at the log. The warm, soft thing hurtled through the air in marvelous flight, but the sensation of down between his fingers lingered. It's not dead yet, 
do it again, the chief ordered. Scattered through the gloom of the shed, the five naked boys stood rooted, their eyes glittering. I love these kids, because I knew these kids. As I've said several times in this podcast, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. In my little village of 300 people, there were a group of high school students, almost exactly like Naburo and his friends, too intelligent for their own good, smarter than their parents by miles, smarter than their teachers by miles. They also went completely off the intellectual rails. They didn't ritualistically kill kittens to prove that they were beyond petty morality, but they did become enamored with totalitarian fascism and openly advocated to anyone who would listen, including their teachers, that the best possible society, I kid you not, would be one exactly like Nazi Germany, except without, they stressed, the racism. A society where they, the true geniuses, would deservedly have all the power, and the rest of us deservedly would be their slaves. Don't ever let your kids learn to read, especially if your kids are smarter than you. These kids, though, are more than just terrified. They're evocative, I think, of the spiritual crisis in which Japan found itself in that moment. When Japan lost the Second World War, everything that society had been taught to believe, every ideological line about the divinity of the emperor and the superiority of the Yamato race, every idea as to how they were supposed to live their lives, was proven to be irrevocably and irredeemably false, to be worthless, to be useless, to have done nothing but lead them to the brink of annihilation. In the ruins of all that, People had to find entirely new ways of thinking about being alive. And suddenly, free from all limits and constraints, free from any sort of big other, they came up with some really wild ideas. Some people went crazy. They started advocating for all sorts of insane political ideas. There were people who decided to devote themselves to throwing rotten fruit at the emperor. There were all these artists who decided collectively to start drinking jet fuel as a way to kill themselves. There were all these women who decided that just because the new Japanese constitution said they were equal, that they were actually equal and went around starting their own businesses. And yet it is the unbridled wildness of those attempts to reorganize the world that made Japanese literature from those decades, from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, one of the great flowerings in the history of literature. You get the languid, suicidal pessimism of Asumo Datsai, the lonely human isolationism of Yasunari Kawabata, the surrealist fantasy of Kobo Abe, the crippling, disintegrating, institutionalized self-doubt of Kenzaburo Oa, and you get, of course, the decadence of Yukio Mishima, who goes so deep down the rabbit hole of obscene intellectual decadence that he comes back out on the other side, somewhere in the jungle of disciplined, violent austerity. Anyway, that night, after Ryuji finishes regaling Naboru and Fusako with stories about the time his ship nearly sank in a typhoon, and Naboru goes to bed, Fusako locks the door to Naboru's room and then invites Ryuji into her bedroom to do what it is that people do in bedrooms at night after dinner dates. There exists, though, a tiny hole in the wall between Naboru's room and Fusako's room, left over, the book suggests, from when the house had been requisitioned by the American occupation for nurses' quarters. And Naboro knows about the hole, uses the hole, in fact, frequently, to watch his mother masturbate. He discovered that it was her habit, though the nights were not yet uncomfortably hot, to sit completely naked for a few minutes before going to bed. He had a terrible time when she sat near the wall mirror, for it hung in a corner of the room that he could not see. She was only 33, and her slender body, 
shapely from playing tennis every week, was beautiful. Usually she got right into bed after touching her flesh with perfume. But sometimes she would sit at the dressing table and gaze into the mirror at her profile for minutes at a time, eyes hollow as though ravaged by fever, scented fingers rooted between her thighs. On those nights, mistaking the crimson of her bundled nails for blood, Naboru trembled. That night, through the home, he watches his mother and Ryuji have sex, and it is the most marvelous thing this 13-year-old pubescent mind has ever witnessed. It enraptures him with its melding of flesh and shadow. It hypnotizes him with its heavy breathing, punctuated by the sound of a ship's horn sounding in the harbor. It does what almost nothing on this earth has ever done. It impresses him. Ryuji, Noboru decides, is a hero. Someone who rises above the interminable mediocrity of this world. One of the core convictions of Noboru's group is that all adults are mediocrities, that there is nothing and no one in the adult world worth believing in or valuing. But Noboru seems to think, even hopes perhaps, that Ryuji is the exception to this rule, that he can be a man that the group, or at least Noboru, can look up to with admiration instead of contempt, the embodiment of the ideal, an adult whose life would not be a disgrace to live. But not long after Noboru decides on this idea, Ryuji begins to disappoint him. Ryuji is merely human. He cannot help but come up short in terms of the ideal Noboru has decided he's supposed to embody. And yet whenever the cracks show, whenever Ryuji does or says something common, Noboru becomes more and more frustrated with him. He even goes so far as to keep a list of the charges against Ryuji in his journal. Charges against Ryuji Sukazaki. 1. Smiling at me in a cowardly, ingratiating way when I met him this noon. 2. Wearing a dripping wet shirt and explaining that he had taken a shower in the fountain at the park, just like an old bum. 3. Deciding arbitrarily to spend the night out with mother, thereby leaving me in an awfully isolated position. As Ryuji and his mother become more and more entwined, Noburo weighs these crimes against Ryuji's corresponding glimpses of beauty, the wet shirts against the stories about his adventures at sea. Is he really a hero? Does he really have in him the capacity to transcend the mediocrity of this awful, boring, bland world? Sometimes, like when his mother and Ryuji exchange elegant, tortured glances as he departs for another term at sea, Noboru is convinced of it, though he anxiously fears that if the moment lasts too long, one of them will screw it up by saying something ridiculous. Other times, however, his doubts seem overwhelming. Eventually, though, Ryuji answers the question once and for all by making the worst mistake any person who aspires to greatness can possibly make. He lets himself get enmeshed in family. By that I mean, when Ryuji returns to Yokohama after his season at sea, he decides to marry Fusako, to transfer himself once and for all from the role of the beautiful sailor, risking his life at sea, to the role of the bourgeois husband. This cannot stand. This cannot possibly stand. Red with rage and coughing violently, Noboru pulled his diary from under the pillow as soon as they had left and wrote a short entry. Charges against Ryuji Sukazaki. 3. Answering, when I asked him when he would be sailing again, I'm not sure yet. Noboru put down his pen and thought for a minute while his anger mounted. Then he added, 4. Coming back here again in the first place. But soon he began to feel ashamed of his anger. What good had been all that training and absolute dispassion? He carefully explored every corner of his heart to make certain not even a fragment of rage remained, and then reread what he had written. 
When he had finished, he was convinced. Revision would not be necessary. Day by day, Ryuji sinks deeper and deeper into degradation. He starts taking accounting classes and helping out at the business. He starts dressing in expensive, fashionable clothes, unbefitting a man of the sea. And you understand why Ryuji does what he does. Fusako is offering him a great deal. He gets to marry an attractive woman. He gets to live in a nice house, have a family, climb the social ladder, and live the rest of his life in financial security. The Japanese dream, as it were. All he has to do is step into the role, play the part that Fusako has laid out for him, play the role of husband and father. But, as the chief tells his followers in a marvelous speech of denunciation, Fathers, just think about it for a minute. They're enough to make you puke. Fathers are evil itself, laden with everything ugly in man. There is no such thing as a good father, because the role itself is bad. Strict fathers, soft fathers, nice moderate fathers, one's as bad as another. They stand in the way of our progress, while they try to burden us with their inferiority complexes, and their unrealized aspirations, and their resentments, and their ideals, and the weaknesses they've never told anyone about, and their sins, and their sweeter-than-honey dreams, and the maxims they've never had the courage to live by. They like to unload all of that silly crap on us. All of it. It's speeches like the above that make Mishima such an obscene joy to read. His characters, his narrators, his novels are always espousing these utterly wild ideas. These ideas about the nature of reality, the purpose of life, the ugliness of the most fundamental systems of our societies, with just enough sincerity that you're almost persuaded, that you're forced to confront the way in which that maybe, just maybe, there's some truth to what he says. Maybe the institution of fatherhood really is an aesthetically monstrous and ridiculous institution. Despite arising from the most painfully polite civilization in human history, there is no politeness in Mishima, no bashfulness, no tact. He dares to utter the unutterable and smiles triumphantly, while we, the good and decent and wholesome and mundane, squirm painfully in our chairs. Above all else, he once said in an interview, always shock. Fifty years later, Mishima still finds the means to shock, to uproot, to confront, to spit in the face of our most base conventions about what is good and decent in life. That's admirable in a writer. The unadmirable decline of Ryuji, however, culminates the night that Fusako and Ryuji tell Noboru that they're going to get married and that Noboru should start calling Ryuji father. After Noboru goes to bed, Fusako and Ryuji once again retire to Fusako's bedroom for a tryst. But this time, instead of trysting with the lights on, they decide for the first time to tryst with the lights off. Suddenly, in the middle of the affair, Ryuji notices a faint beam of light trickling through the wall. Noboro is undone. Fusako races out of the room and barges into Noboro's, where she finds him asleep near the peephole. She is humiliated. She is enraged. She lifts up her hand and slaps Noboro across the face. To his surprise, Noboro discovered that he had lost all desire to protest that he had been studying English. But that didn't make any difference now. Obviously, his mother was not mistaken. She had brushed against reality, a thing she dreaded worse than leeches. In one sense, that made them more nearly equal now than they had ever been. It was almost empathy. Pressing his palms to his reddened cheeks, Noboru resolved to watch carefully how a person drawn so near could retreat in one fleeting instant to an unattainable distance. Reality, chaos, beauty, ugliness, violence, 
These are the truths, the indissoluble bands of light that cut through the muslin gauze of our world. Naburo, or so Naburo claims, has the strength to witness them with his eyes open. This is what makes him a genius. This is what sets him and his cadre of sociopathic tweens apart. It is what Mishima seems to believe sets himself apart. Eventually, Fusako insists that Naboru's new father come into the room and discipline her frightening child. If he is going to play the role of father, he must also play the role of punisher. When Ryuji enters the room, however, he is unable to make up his mind about what to do. What is the proper action? What is demanded of a father? Should he beat Naboru? Can anything that happens on land instead of at sea truly be of consequence? He cannot decide, and so he does nothing. He does what every mediocre father, every dad, has ever done in the face of immense crisis. He sticks his head in the sand and pretends nothing has happened. He says that literally. He says, one day we'll be able to laugh together and talk about what's happened here as three adults. Mother, I want you to calm down too. We're going to forget about the past and face the future happily, hand in hand. Naboro listened, feeling as though he were about to suffocate. Can this man be saying things like that? This splendid hero who once shone so brightly? Every word burned like fire. He wanted to scream, as his mother had screamed. How can you do this to me? The sailor was saying things he was never meant to say, and he was speaking proudly, for he believed in himself, was satisfied with the role of father he had stepped forward to accept. He is satisfied. Noburo felt nauseous. Tomorrow, Ryuji's slavish hands, the hands of a father, puttering over carpentry on a Sunday afternoon, would close forever around the access to that unearthly brilliance which he himself had once revealed. What do you say, son? Ryuji concluded, clapping a hand on Noburo's shoulder. He tried to shake free, but couldn't. He was thinking that the chief had been right. There were worse things than being beaten. Like Fusako, Ryuji had come into Naburo's room to discover reality, the frightening truth of our existence, seen eye to eye with the way that this young boy of 13 had been incestuously exploiting their sexuality for his own dispassionate delight. And yet, when confronted by that reality, he couldn't find the strength to do anything but avert his eyes. Ryuji was once a great man, but now he has become a coward. Faced with this unconscionable crime against everything that is vibrant in the human spirit, Naburo has the chief call an emergency meeting. Together they gather in an abandoned swimming pool and hold for Ryuji what amounts to a trial. And it is during this trial that Naburo and his friends at long last finally go completely and gloriously off the rails. Craning their necks to see, the boys read the text together. It was an excerpt from Naboru's diary. The dresser drawer incident of the night before had brought to 18 the number of entries. This is awful, the chief mourned. The last one alone is worth about 35 points. And the total, let's see, even if you go easy and call this first charge 5 points, they get worse the closer they get to the end. I'm afraid the total's way over 150. I didn't realize it was quite that bad. We're going to have to do something about this. As he listened to the chief, Naburo began to tremble. Finally, he asked, Is there any chance of saving him? None at all. It's too bad, though. The chief stated the conclusion simply. We'll have to pass sentence. In the long run, it's for his own good. Number three, 
Do you remember the day on the pier when I said there was only one way to make him a hero again, and that soon I'd be able to tell you what it was? I remember, Naburo answered, trying to keep his legs from trembling. Well, the time has come. What they decide to do, what they believe their principles require them to do, what they believe cosmic justice demands they do, is kill Ryuji. There is a loophole, the chief points out that prevents children under the age of 14 from being punished by law for crimes. Some of them are now almost 14. The time for them to commit murder with legal impunity is running out. This is our last chance, the chief repeated. If we don't act now, we will never again be able to obey freedom's supreme command, to perform the deed essential to filling the emptiness of the world, unless we are prepared to sacrifice our lives. And you can see, that it's absurd for the executioners to risk their own lives. If we don't act now, we'll never be able to steal again, or murder, or do any of the things that testify to man's freedom. We'll end up puking flattery and gossip, trembling our days away in submission and compromise and fear, worrying about what the neighbors are doing, living like squealing mice, and someday we'll get married and have kids, and finally we'll become fathers, the vilest thing on earth. And so, the next day, under the guise of wanting to hear more of his stories about life at sea, they lure Ryuji into a cave up on the hills overlooking Yokohama. There, as Ryuji regales them with tale after tale, they prepare for him a cup of poisoned tea. Strangely, though, as he talks and talks, Ryuji actually begins to recover his former self, to recognize what it is that he had lost and that perhaps he has made a mistake. Gradually, as he talked to the boys, Ryuji had come to understand himself as Noboru imagined him. I could have been a man sailing away forever. He had been fed up with all of it, glutted, and yet now, slowly, he was awakening again to the immensity of what he had abandoned. The dark passions of the tides, the shriek of a tidal wave, the avalanching break of surf upon a shoal, an unknown glory calling for him endlessly from the dark offing. Glory merged in death and in a woman. Glory to fashion of his destiny something special, something rare. At twenty he had been passionately certain. In the depths of the world's darkness was a point of light, which had been provided for him alone, and would draw near some day to irradiate him and no other. Whenever he dreamed of them, glory and death and woman were consubstantial. Yet, when the woman had been attained, the other two withdrew beyond the offing and ceased their mournful wailing of his name. The things he had rejected were now rejecting him. Now began a peaceful life, a life bereft of motion. In this moment, in this final climactic scene, the split between Ryuji's suddenly rising thoughts and the machinations of precocious boy justice swirling around him creates one of the great ironic tensions in literature. Here they are preparing to execute a man for a hideous crime, while at the same time, that man is becoming more and more innocent of that crime, regaining his former light, realizing the horrible mistake that it was to forego the sea, to get married, to become a father, to become yet another of the billions of normal men smothering our world. But it is too late. A new role has been prescribed for him. If he can no longer be a beautiful sailor at sea, he will have to become a beautiful warning to others. Waves as tepid as blood inside an atoll, 
the tropical sun blaring across the sky like the call of a brass trumpet, the many-colored sea, sharks. Another step or two and Ryuji would have regretted it. Here's your tea, Noboro offered him from behind, thrusting a dark brown plastic cup near Ryuji's cheek. Absently, Ryuji took it. He noticed Noboro's hands trembling slightly, probably from the cold. Still immersed in his dream, he drank down the tepid tea. It tasted bitter. Glory, as anyone knows, is bitter stuff. I adored this novel. When I read it, I find myself again and again kicking my feet in the air and cackling with delight. The things these kids believe, the authority with which they articulate their beliefs, the surety with which they insist that the world conform to their rules, the grinding ironic tension of the ending as what we know will happen does in fact happen, the loneliness and elegance of being a person who can feel in their gut that they are more than nothing, that they are something. You've probably noticed that this episode is a decent measure longer than a normal episode of The Joy of Serious Literature. That's because I cannot help myself when it comes to this book. I want to talk about its meager 180 pages endlessly. There are so many scenes, so many lines, so many ideas that surprise you with their wildness, with their caustic beauty, with their flippant disregard for the conventions of common life. And yet what makes the sailor who fell from grace with the sea so powerful, so haunting, so shaking, what makes it one of the defining literary works of my life, even as I laugh at it, is that Noboro and his friends are ultimately right. Ryuji had it in him to be beautiful, and he had squandered it. He had not been born mediocre. He had chosen mediocrity, preferred it. If beauty is the defining value of this world, and it is the defining value of this world, what could possibly be a more obscene crime? I said towards the beginning of this episode that what made Mishima Mishima was his ideas. Mishima is this great writer of ideas perhaps the greatest writer of ideas, after Dostoevsky. His understanding of the human mind, its machinations and monomanias, its arrogances and cruelties, its mediocrities and ambitions, is so thorough and complete that he's able to sit on our shoulder and whisper ideas, wild and insane and barbarous ideas, ideas about the horror of fathers, about the primacy of beauty, about the beauty of cruelty, about how the sublime and the hideous cannot coexist, about how life and art cannot be two things but must be one thing, and have them be, dare I say it, persuasive, infectious. The great question in life has always been and always will be, what should we do with our lives? The entirety of human intellectual endeavor, from philosophy to history to religion, is, in some essential measure, the providing of some answer to this question. But the fact of the matter is that most of the answers we get are really humdrum and worthless. We scream out, what am I supposed to do? And the answer we get back is a simpering, be happy, I guess? At one point, in The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, the chief recounts a story about asking his father that very question. Dad, is there any purpose in life? You see what I was getting at, don't you? The chief continues. What I really meant. Father, can you give me one single reason why you go on living? Wouldn't it be better to just fade away as quickly as possible? But a first-class insinuation never reaches a man like that. He just looks surprised, and his eyes bugged, and he stared at me. I hate that kind of ridiculous adult surprise. And when he finally answered, what do you think he said? Son, 
Nobody is going to provide you with a purpose in life. You've got to make one for yourself. How's that for a stupid hackneyed moral? The platitudes of our society, alas, are the platitudes of a father. Boring. And through their boringness, therefore utterly insufficient to the immensity of the crisis that is being alive. But what Mishima does, what he does almost uniquely, what he does so explicitly in The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, is dare to give you an answer that isn't boring. He says to us, the purpose of life is to be beautiful. He says, you must be beautiful or else you must die. That idea is insane. It leads these kids to killing a 32-year-old ex-sailor in a cave because he doesn't live up to some role they've assigned him. And yet it cannot help but be compelling. Perhaps he is right, we think. Living is serious business. Living counts for something. Perhaps instead of animals, we are instead rough marble, a blank page, a blank canvas. Perhaps if we are to be worth anything, it isn't enough to be merely happy, to merely consume, to be merely moral, but instead we must craft ourselves into something striking and powerful, into something elegant and luminous. And that idea is made more enrapturing, more fascinating by the fact that Mishima himself seems to have tried to live it out. In his first novel, he wrote, I wanted to make a poem of my life, and he did. He transformed his life into a great tragedy, full of thunder and extremism, with violence and blood, with a death that was not just a death, but a grand spectacle that held the world transfixed. While the rest of us were set on being happy mediocrities, Mishima was determined to be a poem. While Ryuji was unsure of what he wanted, Noboro was determined that Ryuji would be a poem. Should we also be determined to be poems? Is it even possible to be such a thing? Can the truly beautiful life exist outside the fantasies of literature and lunatics? Can a person really take their life and force it into being art, the way that a sculptor hews marble into a bust of Venus? It is hard to say. It is hard to say even if Mishima himself truly believed it. He was so painfully self-aware. He was so constantly undercutting himself behind his own back. His last novel, The Decay of the Angel, the last pages of which he turned into his publisher the day that he committed suicide, is, I firmly believe, a parody of his own suicide, a work that spits in his own face for trying to prove with his death that he was something he wasn't. But the idea is so intoxicating. It stokes so powerfully the fires of our own arrogance. You read The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, you bask in its language, in its rhetoric, and its child geniuses turned murderers, and sailors turned heroes, turned disgraces, turned heroes again, in its executions, in its idea of justice. And, if only for a moment, you believe it. You open your eyes to the light, stretch your muscles, and think anxiously, I must find a way to do more, to be more. Thank you. This has been Episode 6 of The Joy of Serious Literature. Thank you so much for listening. I am grateful to you from the bottom of my bookish heart. If you find Yukio Mishima interesting, and you should, because he is, there are a couple additional items I'd like to recommend to you. First is Mishima's novel, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. The Temple of the Golden Pavilion is about a Buddhist acolyte at this very famous, very old Japanese temple outside of Kyoto, who decides to burn the temple to the ground because the temple is too beautiful and he is too ugly to possibly coexist in the world. Either he must murder it, or it will murder him. 
As Mishima novels go, the Temple of the Golden Pavilion has some of the most fascinating characters, one of the best translations, and offers this really profound examination of how terrorizing the beautiful can really be to witness. Second, I'd also like to recommend the film Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, which was directed by Paul Schrader, the guy who wrote Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ. The movie has some flaws. The guy who plays Mishima, for example, doesn't look enough like Mishima. But on the whole, it's a really engaging film, and above and away the best film that I've ever seen when it comes to dealing with the relationship between a writer and their writing. And one of the ways it does this is by actually integrating these short, very stylized adaptations of several of Mishima's novels into the actual film. It's really a thing to behold, and the gold standard for literary biopics. Alright, join me again next time when I'll be examining at undoubtedly ridiculous length one single haiku by America's first great black literary writer, Richard Wright. Godspeed.